Good morning, church. Listen, uh, Cammie, your new mom over here holding a baby, she told me that, that Oakland was going to cry during my preaching, and I was glad that she waited till David started talking before she did that, so I think the problem was not me, it's him, just for future reference. But good morning, it's good to be in God's house, amen? Are you glad to be here? I got all day long. I got all day long. It's always good to come into God's house. And let me just start, um, as David had you turn to Malachi, I want to preach a message that God put on my heart about three weeks ago. And I, I'll just give a disclaimer up front. You know, some sermons are encouragement. Uh, they're fun. They're engaging. And some of them feel a little bit more convicting. And so if you feel today like, man, Shane's just hammering me today, just know this. This is the conviction he put on my heart. And this is me that he was dealing with. And I was like, God, I, I don't want to be guilty of empty worship. And so as I share this today, if the Holy Spirit speaks to you, by all means, like I think this is something we all need to be challenged in. But hear my heart as a pastor. I don't like to beat up on people. And so I do want to encourage people in their faith to live a life worthy of the calling. Is that okay? Also, you can help me out by not looking at me with those looks that you give me sometimes. I mean, a little feedback is good. If you hear something that's right, you can say amen in this church. You can nod your head. To, let me know you're not asleep. Um, the last congregation, I thought, I thought, man, man, I'm boring them to death. And their just eyes were big like this, and they were staring at me. And I was like, God, what am I doing? It's okay to talk back in church. Amen. All right, so Malachi chapter 1, I want to begin with just... Being real with you this morning, as a pastor, I think one of my greatest fears is irrelevancy. I don't want to get up here and share something that's not going to help somebody. I want to always be used by God to be able to grow his people in their faith. I want to be relevant in that case. But also, I, I don't want to ever become indifferent. And what I mean by that is just getting where I'm going through the motions. Uh, this that I do, I, I consider very, very important, handling the word of God, sharing the word of God. And I don't ever want to be guilty of apathy or indifference or insincerity when it comes to worship, when it comes to this thing that I get to be a part of and do. And so indifference is simply just a lack of interest or concern or unimportance. And I don't want to fall into the ritual. Um, I just want to be genuine in what I do. And hopefully that's the way everybody else wants to be as well. Because here's what we learn from human condition is we, we are good at starting off well, but as time goes on, we can kind of wane. And, and I'll give you examples. So marriage, I did a wedding yesterday. This young couple standing there before their friends and family and God, and they're looking at each other with these googly eyes, and they're just so sweet. You're like, man, that's just a, a precious moment. There's so much love for one another, and they can start off so, so great, but I know all too well as a pastor and have ministered for several years that there's another end of that spectrum. And you can see two people that started off that way that hate each other's guts now. And you're like, how is that possible that you can say, till death do us part? You're like, I'm going to make that happen sooner than you think, buddy. Right? And so you can go from one extreme to the other. Or maybe it's a job. You're like, man, I'm going I'm to hit this job. I love my job. I'm going to give everything I've got. Work hard. And you show up early. You stay late. You do more than you're expected to do. Your boss is like, man, that guy's a go-getter. Or that girl is a, a go-getter. And then over time, maybe you feel underappreciated. Or you feel like there's too much workload. And you start getting kind of lazy in your work. And you, become, you go from a go-getter to a a no-shower, you know what that is? Hey, where's Shane at? I don't know, he no-showed today, right? So we get this idea of just kind of starting off hot and then just waning or becoming indifferent, or maybe it's a hobby, and you're like, man, I'm, gonna, I'm all in on this hobby, and you buy all the toys, the tools, 
And the next thing you know, you've kind of just lost interest in it and it's collecting dust somewhere in a shop or on a, on a shelf. I think that we all understand um, what I'm sharing today. And I think when it comes to matters and areas where if we're not careful, we can become indifferent. Most importantly of all, I want to talk about our faith for a few moments. Because I know uh, what faith is like. I mean, we, we get started. We're like excited when you hear the gospel, the good news of, of Jesus Christ. And we can start off really hot. But if we're not careful over time, we can allow that to wane as well. And so um, I say that because this is where we're at in Scripture, Malachi. Um, and before we go into the text, I want to give you just a, an upgrade, just kind of a background of what's happening historically. So turn your page to the end of Malachi. And notice the one page between Malachi and Matthew. Now, there are a lot of people that probably already know this. There are a lot that don't. But notice there's one page. My Bible has front and back, so two pages. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and here's what you and I need to realize, is that represents 400 years of history. Right there in that one page. 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's a long time. To give you a little bit of perspective, it was December of 1620 that um, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock 403 years ago. Uh, or maybe this one, 1776, America declared independence from Britain. That was 247 years ago. So we all agree that 400 years is a long time. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're, we're left with this, like, what happened in 400 years? And here's something that every one of us need to know. These are called the silent years, the intertestamental period. There's no word from God. The last message that God would give to his people was through the prophet Malachi, and it was not a good message. It was one where he was kind of just getting on them a little bit, and that would be 400 years of radio silence from God before we turn the page to Matthew, and we hear the, the angels proclaiming the greatest message ever proclaimed, the good news that the Messiah is born. And so 400 years of no word from God. And so here's what we need to realize and understand. It's a principle that I believe is true in our lives. Even though God is silent, he's at work. Okay? Even though God is silent, sometimes in your life, I need to hear from God. I need God to be speaking to me right now. Even though he's silent doesn't mean that he's not working behind the scenes on your behalf. Right? And so here, let me tell you what that looks like in that intertestamental period. It's 400 years, and you don't see it in Scripture, but Daniel alludes to it. Daniel chapter 2, 7, 8, and 11, God gives him progressive revelation as he gets older, a little more detail, a little more detail. But in chapter 2, he gives him the image of the statue. You remember that one? The gold head, the silver arms and chest. And all of that is is just a kind of a timeline of all the world powers that are going to come on the stage. So when Daniel is exiled along with all of Israel because of their disobedience, remember this, they were supposed to let the, ran, the land rest. Um, every seventh year it was called a Sabbath rest for the land. And they didn't do this. And so they did it over and over and over. And so God sent them into exile. Daniel would learn later that it was going to be for 70 years that they're in exile because of their disobedience, Right? And so it's while he's in exile that God gives Daniel this revelation. He says, all right, right now Babylon is obviously in control. Those are the ones that conquered you and took you away as captives. And Babylon will be conquered later by Media Persia. And so there's the Persian rule. And if you know Queen Esther's story, she became queen of Persia. That's because Persia was in control at that time. After Persia was another world power that came on the scene, Greece, and a man named Alexander the Great who swept across much of that region, conquering. He conquered so much that his armies were like, that's it, we're done. We're not going to conquer anything else. We've conquered so much. And after the time of, of the Greek um, control, there was the Roman Empire that came on the scene. And this would be the scene, the, the empire, that was 
working in Matthew all the way through the rest of the New Testament. So in the background, these are all the world powers that are coming on the stage. What benefit do we see in this? Two things. God was silent, but God was working. He was preparing the way for the greatest message to ever hit mankind, the message that the Messiah was born. Here's how he did it. The Greeks, the Hellenization of the Greek culture, he wanted everyone to know Greek culture. He wanted them speaking the same language, say same language. So it wasn't like a bunch of different languages, but everybody will speak Greek. You'll understand Greek. You can have your religion, but you need to do it in Greek. That would prompt the church leaders of the time, to take the Hebrew scriptures and translate them into Koine Greek, which we call the Septuagint, all right? And this is probably the translation that Jesus would have used when he went to the synagogues and taught. And so this Greek culture was there, and so now everyone in that area is under one language, so when the gospel hits the scene, it's going to be easy to communicate that because everybody is speaking the same language. Are you following me so far? Okay, and then Rome takes over, and Rome was known for its diverse, I mean, it had some really cool systems of travel um, and, and to be able to get around roads and all that stuff, and so it's going to make it easier when the gospel hits, and Matthew, for them to take this message everywhere. So God is at work in the background preparing everything on the world stage for the gospel message of the coming of the Messiah, the first advent of Jesus. We celebrate Christmas every year, and I think we underappreciate just how magnificent that was because 400 years of no word from God, that silence is broken from an angel's message shouting that the Messiah is here. I have great news, good news, great news of, of tidings and joy, right? So that's pretty huge. But I always go there and I look at, okay, what was the condition of the, the, the spiritual condition, if you will, of the church or the people back then before Christ came and I parallel that to where we're at today because here's, here's a newsflash for you. Jesus is coming back. He's not coming back as a baby, but he's coming back. And so I have to look at that and go, what is the condition of the church today? And we look at the parallel back then in Malachi's time. And so Malachi is the prophet that God is going to use one last time to speak to Israel. Now, something else you need to know. Malachi wrote about 100 years after the return from exile. So here's what happened. There's 70 years in exile and then through Nehemiah, Ezra, they get to go back to the homeland. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. And there's like a spirit of revival in that whole nation. Ezra steps up to a platform and he opens the word of God and he begins to read it. And it's out of respect for the word of God that everyone stood as he read from the words of God. Powerful moment, right? And as they heard the words being read, they were convicted of their sins. And so there's this great confession of sin everywhere. Everybody's just like, we are sinners. They're repenting of their sin. And they make this huge promise in Nehemiah about 8 or 9, somewhere in there. And they're like, hey, we promise that uh, we're not going to let our children marry foreigners and let them adopt their, their cult-like you know, gods and, and all that stuff. And we're going to get back to tithing to the temple to make sure everything is taken care of. They just made all these promises. This is what we want to do. There was a great, huge revival. And then a hundred years passed, almost a hundred years. And Malachi's on the scene. And the condition is maybe worse than it was before they went into exile. So you see what I'm talking about, how we have this tendency to be way up on the mountaintop one moment and way in the bar ditch the next, right, in the valley. And so this is the condition of the children of Israel. And so God is kind of back and forth with these, these disputes. There's six of them in the book of Malachi. And he's already said, hey, I have loved you. And they're like, oh, yeah, how have you loved us? He said, I've chosen you, Jacob, as my nation. I'm going to use you to spread this message for everyone. And so he then kind of 
targets their worship system. And so I would like for us to look at that for a moment. Before that, can I just pray one more time? Father, we, we acknowledge that this is your word, not my word. And God, I don't want to mishandle it. Uh, Lord, I want to be a vessel used by you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would you tell us what you want us to hear today as we read your scripture. Lord, you bring conviction where conviction is needed. Bring change where change is needed. Lord, I humble myself before you and I ask that you be glorified in our time today in your word. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Malachi the prophet is speaking on behalf of God, and you'll notice a, a repeated phrase, the Lord of heaven's armies, and you'll also notice like six times in these verses the words, my name. God's referencing his name. So it says, the Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests. Now the priests were the ones that were responsible for facilitating their sacrificial system, their worship of the day. It says to the priest, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect that I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. Rhetorically, he's thinking, well, they're going to ask, well, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? He says, you have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven armies. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, or another translation says, when you hold that kind of offering in your hands, why should he show you any favor of all or at all? Ask the Lord of heaven's armies. How I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. I'm going to stop there for just a second, and I want us to understand this very important truth is God does not accept all worship. We see this with Cain and Abel. When Cain and Abel both presented their offerings to the Lord, he rejected Cain's offering. He accepted Abel's offering. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love. And he says, man, if I had the ability to speak all the languages of the earth, even the heavenly languages, even if I offered my body to the flames, sacrifice on myself, do all of these things, if it's not with love, then it's basically useless, it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. And so when it comes to worship, we need to understand that God does not accept all worship, even sincere worship. Sincere worship can be wrong worship. And so what we see is these guys are guilty of bringing empty worship or the wrong worship to Almighty God. How were they doing it? <clears throat> well, they were going through the motions. They had the ritual. This is what they were doing since Leviticus when Moses gave them the law. In fact, in Leviticus, he gives them very specific instructions when it came to the sacrifices. And, and notice that he, he kind of bookends what he tells them with two very important phrases. He says, tell Aaron and his sons, these are the ones that are responsible, he says, to be very careful with the sacrificed gifts that the Israelites set apart for me, so they do not bring shame on my holy name. He ends that same thing. Do not bring shame on my holy name, for I will display my holiness among the people of Israel. Now, he gives them instructions for the sacrifices. Now, this is their worship system, right? It's all centered around worship. He says, you will be accepted only if your offering is a male animal with no defects. It may be a bull, a ram, a male goat. Do not present any animal with defects because the Lord will not accept it on your behalf. 
If you present a peace offering to the Lord from your herd or your flock, whether it is fulfilled to fulfill a vow or is a voluntary offering, you must offer a perfect animal. It may have no defect of any kind. You must not offer any animal that is blind, crippled, or injured, or that has a wart, a skin sore, or scabs. Such animals must never be offered on the altar as special gifts to the Lord. You get the gist, right? God's saying, hey, I'm the holy God of Israel, and when you bring a sacrifice, you go through your flock, and you find the absolute best that you have to offer. It's called a sacrifice for a reason, right? And you're going to bring your very best as a sacrifice. Fast forward several hundred years, and they've gotten into the practice of giving God less than their best, right? So they would look through their flocks, and they're like, hey, look at that little goat over there. He's going to die anyways. We might as well just take him and sacrifice it. And to make matters worse, the priests were in on it as well, and they were allowing this to happen. And so the rebuke is pretty heavy. It's like they're offering empty worship because they're going through ritual, and their hearts are not connected to it. There's no obedience to what they were told to do in the first place. Are you following me so far? And so here's a question for you. Could the message of Malachi apply to today's church? I'm just asking. I think so, right? I think we can get caught up occasionally It just... Offering empty worship, going through the motions, but our heart not connected to it. Can I just let you in on a little secret? He already knows. We can fake it. We can fool other people, but we can't fool God. That's why I said one of my greatest fears is just becoming apathetic because he knows my heart, right? And so they're offering empty worship. And notice this. It's so serious, his lack or his desire for true authentic worship. It is so important to him that he would rather not have any sacrifices at all than to have those empty sacrifices. Notice what he says. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord, or how I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that those, these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. The same sacrifices they're commanded to give. It's their pattern of worship. And he's like, it's so bad, I wish you wouldn't even do it. That'd be like today saying, I wish you wouldn't even come to church with that attitude, Right? I'd rather somebody just shut the doors and not have church at all than to bring that kind of empty worship there. So there's no honor, there's no respect. And that's a big deal in their culture because he appeals to them as a, as a father um, and as a master. And so it was a big deal in their culture to preach that to the children because they were to honor their father and mother. There was a blessing that was tied to that. And if they didn't honor father and mother in the Old Testament, they could be killed, stoned to death for it. So if you had a kid that was disrespecting parents and not honoring mom and dad, they could be killed on behalf of that. And so they made a big deal at teaching the children how important it was to honor the father. And so God says, hey, listen, if I'm your father and you're my children, where's the honor that's due me? If I'm your master, where's the respect that is due me? And this Accusation is leveled not only at the priest, but to the people who own the flock. Because in verse 14, he says, Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. And so they were guilty of empty worship or unacceptable worship. And my question is, is, how do we avoid that? How do we avoid offering empty worship, or maybe to say it better, how do we offer acceptable worship to God? Can I just tell you this is a very important truth I think that we need to know. When God inspects our worship, he inspects the worshiper first and then the offering. So when God inspects our worship, he inspects us first. 
not the event, not the ritual, not just going through the motions, but he looks at the heart. And you remember when David was chosen as the next king of Israel, he says, men look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You remember Jesus was always having the run-in with the Pharisees. What were they doing? They put on the show. They looked holy. He said, these guys have an appearance of righteousness, but they deny the power that could make them truly clean. He said, they're like whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of dead man's bones. He said, these guys worship me or honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so we need to know that God inspects the worshiper first before he inspects the the offering. It really is a matter of the heart. Amen? It's a matter of heart. The worship that we offer is, it's a matter of heart. And so I would say this before you say, well, Shane, that's only 20 minutes on a Sunday. That's just part of it. Because my understanding of worship, it's a lifestyle, right? And we have a, you know, like a 20-minute section there where we do music, we do praise, and we call it worship. But it goes so much further than that. It is a, a lifestyle that is presented before God. And so the question is, how do we offer acceptable worship to God? I want to give you two things. Number one, we need to reverence our great God. That's a word we don't hear a whole lot more any, uh, lately, isn't it? Reverence. I was raising the scouts, and the scout law is, what is that? Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, obedient, cheerful, thirsty, brave, clean, and reverent. I might have missed one. It's been years. But the last one was reverent. So this idea of showing reverence to God, it's a feeling or an attitude of deep respect tinged with awe. Reverence. The Bible says in the last days there will be people that will be irreverent. And so we need to bring back reverence of our great God. How many know he's worthy of that respect and that reverence? To to revere God, we must know him more deeply through his word. How do you get to know someone? You know them through time. You spend time with them. And so there are people who, man, man, their heart's in the right spot. And they, they think they're being genuine, but they're genuinely wrong. And they'll say stuff like this. Hey, God loves me just like I am. He doesn't care what I do or how I live my life um, as long as I'm sincere. You can be sincerely wrong. But when we read the word, we understand who God is, his character, right? What he expects, what he, what he loves, what he despises. And the more we get to know him, we, it just it raises that level of reverence for him. Because like, We serve a holy God. Do you know that God's holy? He can't look upon sin. And so to say, well, I mean, me and God are tight, and you live your life however you want to. I'm like, i got a problem with that. That's not showing reverence to God. And so to worship him acceptably is like we have to rebuild this reverence. And to do that, we need to know him. And I think the longer you get to know him, the more you get to know him, the more you grow in that reverence toward him. The apostle Paul, man, he was the man's man. He knew it all. And what did he say? The more he knew, the more he knew, I think the worse he felt. Have you ever done that? The more you learn about the Bible, you're like, man, I'm a dirtbag. The more I read, the more I see the, the distance between God's holiness and my sin. I'm like, wow, I'm jacked up. Paul said, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I, I, I don't want to do, I do. Who shall save me from this wretched man that I am? That's what Paul said. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the answer, right? But we must know him, and to know him, we need to get acquainted with him through his word. Doing that will build a greater reverence for God. I'd say this also, to revere God, we must remember his gracious acts toward us. The children of Israel forgotten. God has been so faithful to them over and over and over again. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt, right? He set them up with a kingdom, and then they had that period of judges, and they just the cyclical pattern of doing good, doing bad, doing good, doing bad. 
And then they break the Sabbath law on the land, and God says, all right, I've had it. I'm sending you away to time out. Seventy years, Babylonian captivity, and they longed to go home. They longed for the temple. They longed to get back to their worship system, and it's destroyed, right? They destroyed the temple on the way out. So over a long period of time, they're allowed to, under new authority, they're allowed to go back to the homeland and rebuild the temple. What a great day that would be for the, the, Jew, the Jewish people. Like the temple is restored. And then Nehemiah comes up and he rebuilds the walls and they're reestablishing themselves. And they forgot all that God had done for them in the past. I'm sure none of us struggle with that. How many are grateful for all that God has done for us through the gospel? I was getting ready yesterday for the shower. My wife comes in and just randomly says, Shane, what are you thankful for? Without missing a beat, because my heart is tuned into this, I'm not going, oh, let me tell you. And I just started going and going and going. Turns out we've got a lot to be grateful for, church. Think about this for a second. Um, my sins that separate me from God, I deserve the hottest parts of hell because of my sin. But the gospel tells me that when I trust in him for salvation, he takes my sins off of me, puts it on his holy, righteous son, and his son dies on my, in my place. That's pretty cool. But then he takes the righteousness that belonged to his son, Jesus, and he says, okay, Shane, I'm going to put that on you. Shane looks in the mirror. I don't see righteousness. But God looks at Shane and he says, Shane, you have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you grateful for that? If you placed your faith in the gospel, there are so many things that we should be grateful for. And so we need to remember, always remember, I think there's a benefit of always counting the blessings. Hey, how's life? Man, let me tell you, I've got so much to be grateful for. You're going through the the worst season of your life. There's still something to find to be grateful for. Amen? So as we remember God's gracious acts toward us in the past, it builds more and more reverence. You know why? Because I'm like, God, I don't deserve that. And you just show grace upon grace upon grace. Wow. God, you're holy. I would say also reverence. We need to fear his discipline. Go back to the imagery of the father and the son. Parents discipline their children. It's a thing, right? Some of us need to bring that back. Growing up, I got a beating, whether I needed it or not. I got a lot of discipline. So I went through a season where my mom would spank me, and I loved it. You know why? Because it didn't hurt. I'd fake it for a while, but then my macho got a hold of me one day. I'm like, that doesn't hurt. And she's like, she said these words that put shivers down my spine. Wait till your dad gets home. I'm going to die, y'all. That's it. I'm going to die tonight. That's, that's what I, I feared, the discipline of my father. I, I knew that he loved me, but I knew that there was consequences for actions. And we need to realize that God loves us. And it says those whom he accepts as sons, he disciplines as sons. Church, do you know that discipline is still a thing when it comes to Almighty God? That we can put ourselves in a position where he's like, hey, you're not losing salvation if you're really his. But he might spank you spiritually from time to time. So I think there's something to be considered there when we like bring back the fear of the discipline of the Lord. There's certain things that I don't want to do because I don't want God to go, mm, watch this, and then just lay out some discipline on me. And so this reverence for our great God needs to be brought back up. If we're going to, ex- if we're going to give acceptable worship to a God who's worthy of it, we've got to bring reverence back. And I would say, secondly, we need to bring our best, the very best, when it comes to being sacrificial. So um, i got this, this saying that I've used in the staff before. If you're capable of bringing a 10, don't bring a 5. If I'm capable of bringing a, and, I, and I'll be fair, if I'm capable of bringing an 8, because I don't think I'll ever hit 10, but if I'm capable of bringing an 8, I should not bring a 5. 
It's, it's called a spirit of excellency, not perfectionism, because no one will ever reach that, and that's a goal that's dangerous to try to reach. But I think that every one of us should always try to do our very best in life. Amen? And, and so it's like this. You go to work, and you get a jerk of a boss. Staff of living water, do not look at me. No, I'm just kidding. So, I mean, but, but you, the reality is we go to work, and we, we work with difficult people or a difficult boss. And, and so when you understand that the goal is not doing it for them, but you do it as though you're doing it for the Lord, it changes things, right? Now, let me bring you back to something I mentioned a while ago. The my name, my name, my name, over and over and over again. He says, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. He says, um... Uh, all around the world, they offer incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations. But he says, you dishonor my name with your actions, bringing contemptible food. And last, in that last verse, he says, um, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. So there's this connection with his name and honor. The, the root word of honor in the Hebrew, the verb form of that is, um, I, I just lost it, kabod, kabod. And it means glory. And the word glory means like heavy. It's, it's weighted, right? To make heavy. And so his name is associated with this heavy honor and glory. And there's a connection between the way we live our lives, our act of worship, and how it builds this, this weight of glory on God. And so the sin of the Israelites then was they were making light of, instead of making heavy, they were making light the name of God, disrespecting and dishonoring him. And so for us, it's like understand what our role is. And, and so to, to add weight to the glory, it's like, man, God, I want to do everything in my life to add value, to add depth, to add just a weight to your name, making your name great, right? And, and a moment ago I said it's not about just singing. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. And so, dear brothers and sisters, those who have placed their faith in Christ, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. All right, we all agree he's done a lot for us in the gospel. Paul says, okay, now, because of that, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. Living as opposed to the Old Testament sacrificial system where something had to die. He says, offer your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he will find, here's the key word, acceptable. And he says, this is truly the way to worship him. So I would submit to you that worship is a lifestyle. Amen? That everything we do is an opportunity for us to bring weight and glory to the name of God. That when I go to work and I'm working for a very difficult boss, in this case that's not true because I work for God, but I'm saying like for the rest of you, you're working for a difficult guy. And you're looking at that going, I can't stand to work for this guy. I don't want to give them my all. When your focus changes from doing it for them because they, they're worth it or not worth it, you say, God's worth my absolute best. So when I go to work, I'm going to do it as though I'm doing it for the Lord. And when I do that, that's a form of worship to God. That's acceptable worship. You're in a difficult marriage. And you're like, man, this just wears me out. And that's to say, just demonstrate holiness and keep living for me and let your life be an example for them. And in doing that, it's an act of worship that you're adding glory to my name by doing that. In acts of service, in showing up to church every Sunday, in singing songs where everything we do, in the, the, the car driving down the road, in a very busy, you know, freeway, and when we're tested and all that stuff, Everything I do, the responses, my communication, my actions, all of that is an opportunity to bring honor and glory to God. It is an act of worship. It is a worship lifestyle. 
right? And so reverencing our great God, and he's worthy of all the reverence, and offering God our best by being sacrificial in everything. And again, if it makes it easier, just say, you know what, I'm doing this to bring honor and glory to God. Because here's the thing. There are people in this world that are watching the church. And I don't know if you've heard this or not, but I have over and over throughout my life. And they said, you know what, if that's what church is like, or if that's what your God is like, I don't want anything to do with it. And the reason they say that is usually because they're watching us. We don't handle something right. We blow up. We, we lose our cool, our testimony, and the people look at us and say, you know what, if that's what Christianity is, I don't need that. And frankly, you can go to the unbelievers sometimes and agnostic people and atheists and all this that, that, that probably demonstrate some of the more, um, th- some of the things that we should be demonstrating regularly. And so uh, there's a, a testimony about our lifestyle that brings honor to the name of God. That's what he said to them. You're dishonoring my name, but there's other people in other nations, they're bringing honor to my name. Because they're bringing a, an acceptable offering, acceptable worship. Are y'all following me, church? So we should give our best worship, service, and life. And I would say this. Just consider this idea of reverence. And encourage you to just kind of take a fresh look at what does it mean to be heartfelt, authentic in your relationship to God. Here's the thing. You're not always going to feel like doing it. That's just honest. Some of the most intimate times of worship, I'm talking music now, that I've experienced have been seasons when I didn't want to be at church in the first place, had a bad attitude, but here's the thing, God knew that. And so I just simply said, God, I don't want to be here. He goes, yeah, I know that. <laughs> I don't want to be here. I got a bad attitude, I'm tired, I really want to go home. But here's the deal. God, you're still worthy of my worship. You're still worthy of it. And so it, it really is a sacrifice of praise now for me. Because I'm sacrificing what I want because you're worth it. And go forward with that attitude. Powerful. Here's the deal. Authenticity simply means just being real. Just be real with God. He can handle it. But God, I want to honor you in everything I do. I want to honor you in my marriage and my work and church and everything I do. God, I want to bring honor to your name. Glory. I want to add weight, heaviness to your name. And when the world looks at us, and hopefully they look at us and they see Like, there's something about that that just draws them to this awesome God who's worthy of of praise and glory. And so, take a fresh look at the reverence and worship and what it looks like just to live everything we do. When you wake up in the morning, it's an opportunity to express genuine, authentic worship that is acceptable to God every day. And so, honoring God's name, I would ask you this. Consider what, excuse me, consider the ways that we can honor God's name um, in our families. Consider ways that we can honor God's name in the workplace or that we can honor God's name in church or in our communities and even beyond. What are some ways that we can honor God's name by our speech, our actions, our conduct, our worship? And also I'd say consider the impact of our actions on God's reputation whenever we're living our lives as God would want us to live them and we're wholeheartedly, authentically worshiping him as a lifestyle, what kind of an impact would that have on the people around us? I, I, I really feel like it's appealing to those that are watching, saying, I don't know what you got, but I feel like I need that. Amen? And so I, I would say this. I don't know what your call to action or your response is today, but here, here's the way I look at it. Life's too short to play games. It really is. Life's too short to play games. 
Um, when I surrendered to preach years ago, when I came to Living Water 20 years ago, I was in over my head, and, and I, I just knew I was a really good cable guy. Let me be a cable guy. I'm good at that. God, preaching is a, tif- a difficult thing, and so I don't want to spend 20 years of my life going through the motions, playing a game, right? Just doing what we, we do. And I think that's a great place for all of us to consider. It's like, God, life's too short. I don't want to just go through the motions, ritual over heart, just going through the motions, playing, playing the game. Everybody thinks everything is great, but God, you know me. You know my heart. And so I would, I would say this. For, for me, it's just always an opportunity to look back. I see this parallel between the, the spiritual condition of the people before the first advent of Christ. He came into a very dark world, Right? He's coming again. What's the condition of the world that he'll return to? How will he find you and me? How will he find the church? Hopefully, he'll see the church engaged in authentic, genuine worship. So I don't know what your response is, but maybe it's a call of rededication. God, I I have to confess that I've been going through the motions. I have to confess that I've been playing a game, and I've not been serious about my faith. And I just kind of just do what I need to do to get by and maybe he's speaking to you today. You're like, God, I just I want to repent of that. And I want you to have my whole heart. God, I, I want to turn over a new leaf. I mean, I know we usually do this the first of the year, but God, I want to turn over a new leaf today. And, and I really, truly want to live a life that is pleasing to you and one that you would see as acceptable worship from me. Maybe you're here today and you've never placed your faith in the gospel. And I just want you to know that's the, the most important thing that you can do. And so however you respond, however the Holy Spirit speaks to you. And listen, we usually close with a prayer and we dismiss, but I would say I want almost want to have an altar call and say, you know, if you feel like you need to come forward and pray and just spend some time with the Lord, man, if that's your if that's you today, that invitation is always always open. But hopefully we allow him to speak to us, you know, in this season as we prepare our hearts for what is called the most wonderful time of the year. It truly is when you look at the big picture. Amen. I don't want to be guilty of offering empty worship to a holy God, and neither do you. Amen? Father, we confess to you this morning that we are just like everybody else for generations and generations. We have this potential of starting off with the best of intentions, with heartfelt worship and passion and zeal and living every area of our lives in a way that reflects that we belong to you. But God, we we get tired. We get burned. We get hurt. We get distracted and we allow the things of this world to kind of choke out some of those things. And Father, we confess that to you. Lord, I think of that great revival of the nation of Israel after the return from exile and how the whole nation was just broken before you, acknowledging their need for you. And they just turned their lives completely around. The sad news is it didn't last. And God, the same thing is true for us. And so God, once again, we come before you and we ask that you forgive us. Lord, forgive us of our empty worship. Forgive us of our ritual. Forgive us of going through the motions, playing a game, putting on a show for someone else. And reality, the one that we should be trying to impress is you. And we know that you see through it all. You see through it all. You see the heart. So God, I pray that today we would be able to just acknowledge that, repent from it, and truly turn to you and offer our lives, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, the one that is acceptable to you. And you said that truly is the way to worship you. God, you're worthy. You're worthy of it all. Lord, we want to make your name great. We want to add glory and weight to your name by the way we live our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would 
just confirm that message today in our hearts and, and help us to see how it applies to us personally and then let us take an action step today, Lord, in obedience to you and to your word. And I humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.